Welcome back to These Are The Words. I'm Eric Kroon. And we are reading Buddha's Brain. And this mantra in case you don't know what they're saying is Akal Mahakala. Akal Mahakal mantra. 30 Days of Chance, Season 2, Day 9. Mantra Meditation Music by Meditative Mind. Akal Mahakal Mantra. You can find it on YouTube. Okay. Akal. Remember we said last time, Mara is time itself. Akal is a veneration to God, a name for God. All of God's names are epithets. What does that word mean? Epithets, epithets. Epithets, an adjective or descriptive phrase expressing a quality characteristic of the person or thing mentioned. A nickname, byname, title, name, label, tag, sobriquet. That is, uh, syn those are synonyms for epithet. Okay? That is why the Jewish people call God Hashem. And the rest of the world calls Hashem God. What is this word God? 
Where does this word God come from? Where does this word God come from? Does it come from the word good? It certainly looks like it sounds like good. But I really don't know, actually. But the, the term, it's hard-pressed to find out where the term God comes from. Because in Greek, it is theos. Theos. And theos means divine one or divinity. In, in Sanskrit, it is deva or divya. Deva, which implies the light. And Hashem, it also in the the Zohar, in the or the Zohar in uh, Kabbalistic teaching, the Ein Sof. The Ein Sof is the limitless light. Okay? We don't know what God's form is. And so God is formless. God is formless. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. He is formless. So light is the next best form that we can attribute to God. So loose or looks or loose is a form of God and also another epithet of God which is a Latin word for for light. What is the Latin word for light? Let's look it up. What is the Latin word? Word for light. Lux. L-U-X. Lux. Okay? So, if Mara is the being of time and space, the being, the demi-urge of samsara, the demi-urge of darkness, the, the king of all the demons, Maya, Mara. Akal is the epithet for God, the transcendental one, the one who is beyond all forms. And so the timeless being Hashem is talking about in the Jewish religion, when they say Hashem, it means the name. Ha, the, Shem, name, the Hashem. I think it's like that, Hashem, the name, the name. Because they cannot say God's name, it is too holy. And also... It is Yod, the, the four letters, the tetragrammaton, Yod, He, Vav, He. Those four Hebrew letters. And they do not say it. The Jews do not say the name. That's why they say the name. They're talking about God's name because it is too holy to pronounce. It's not uh, that they can't say the Hebrew letters. They can say the Hebrew letters. They're able to say the Hebrew letters. It's not going to offend God. It's not taking God's name in vain if they say the Hebrew letters. They say Hebrew letters all the time. They say the letter Yod. They say the letter Hey. They say the letter Vav. They say the letter uh, Hey again. <laughs> they repeat the, the Hebrew letters all the time. And they make words with the Hebrew letters because it is their language. 
But the 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 tetragrammaton, the four letters, and that is that is to say that uh, Moses understood it as I am that I am, I am that one. You know, I am I that I am. But it means that God. He did not tell Moses his name, 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 name. That's why they say the name. If if it was the tradition in the Jewish religion that God said, you could say my name, my name is Jack. You could say my name anytime you want to say my name. Because the, the surrounding nations, the surrounding nations, and I'm going to preach a little bit right now. Because this is the spirit that I'm in. The, and this pertains to Buddhism, believe it or not. The surrounding nations had names for all their gods. And they took their names very lightly. They took, you know, they were saying, Oh, the name of this god is uh, El. And the name of this god is Ba'el. And the name of this god is uh, Ishtar. And the name of this god is... Uh, Isis, and the name of this god is Horus, and the name of this god is, and and the same thing, the same thing, like the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve, Adam was responsible for naming all the animals, but they understand that there's something separate from the animal kingdom, the material world. That is the spiritual world. And that is too holy to be named. In a sense, that's too holy to be named. Okay? It's not to be named as like a man names uh, an animal. And calls the animal cat or dog or bird. It's nothing wrong with that, but it's to be made separate. That's what holiness means, to be made separate. That's why they say Hashem. They say they can't say God's name. We don't say God's name because it's too holy. It's too holy. It's too holy. It's too holy. So we try to substitute so that we know what we're talking about, the name of God, Hashem. Hashem. Okay? So this is all of God's names. This is why I say all of God's names are epithets. They're epithets. They're, they're meant to describe a quality of the being. A quality of the being. So akal is a Sanskrit word that means the timeless being. And it makes sense because the name that was revealed to Moses is describing, it is, it's saying that he is the absolute. He is the almighty. He is the absolute. He is the, the absolute being. He is. He is. And he will always. This, this idea of he is. is uh, it implies that which will always be. And therefore is not subject to time. That which is always be. And like I said, Mara, 
Remember, in Buddhism, Mara is the ruler over samsara. And Mara is, this is what I'm saying, Mara is time itself. And plus, not only time, but also ignorance and all these limitations. But Hashem is, or Akal, is the timeless being, the one who is eternal. I'll read it here. Shri Akal, an honorific word, is of, tra- of Sanskrit, Sanskrit origin used as a form of respect or veneration of the Almighty. Akal, 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 the one beyond time, the one beyond time is one of the many names used for the timeless being or God. Thus the phrase means venerated almighty is the ultimate truth. Okay? So like I said, that one, this is how it ties into Buddhism. That one, that original light, that one who is the original light, who is the absolute light, is beyond time, therefore beyond samsara, therefore transcendental to this world, transcendental to the material world, transcendental to samsara, transcendental to Mara, to Mara, okay? So, uh, I just happened by chance to find this mantra, and it fits in, it fits in perfectly. Okay, with what we're doing, with what we're reading. We are, as humans, we're, we're shaped, we, we can be shaped, we can be formed. We're, we're, we're like, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, let me look up the word. Uh, malleable, malleable. Malleable. Malleable is able to be hammered or pressed permanently out of shape without breaking or cracking. Easily influenced or pliable. We are able to be influenced very easily. Believe it or not, they not too long ago discovered that the brain is able to form new neurons throughout one's life. All throughout one's life, even into old age. The brain can form new neurons. It wasn't a few decades ago that they thought that uh, the brain stopped developing at the age of like, you know, 20 or 21 or something like that. Okay? So the brain is malleable. It's able to be shaped and reshaped and reshaped again. And that's why it's important That is what the Buddha teaches. The Buddha could have just reached enlightenment and not talked to anyone. He could have just went around and did anything. He he could have just done anything. But what he did was he allowed people uh, to follow him and he shared with others what he had to say. Okay? Okay, 
So I'm going to read the next pair in the in the Dhammapada. In the Dhammapada, the Dhammapada, the Buddha's path of wisdom. The pairs. The pairs. Okay. Okay. This is the next pair. Just as rain breaks through an ill-thatched house, an ill-built house, or an ill-locked, um, or badly locked up, badly, uh, for example, I have shutters around the windows of where I live, and this is a, a an ill-thatched house means, it's an old way of saying, a place that's not very well guarded or protected, not very well built. Just as rain breaks through an ill-thatched house, imagine rain can break through that kind of a house, okay? So passion penetrates an undeveloped. So passion penetrates an undeveloped mind. You see, in Catholic teaching, uh, the understanding of sin is really the passions, the passions, the passions, the passions that we have, the the desires. The, 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 the impulsive desires, the impulsive desires, and even deep, the, the impulsive desires can be so deep in us that we don't even know it's there. And then something happens, like, for instance, let's take an example. We, we uh, win the lottery, and all of a sudden, we have $10 million dollars. And we're like, oh my God, all of a sudden, we spend it on a giant mansion, all fill the mansion with all expensive furniture that we never had before, get all kinds of expensive clothes and jewelry, and, you know, we're, we buy a yacht, and we buy a helicopter even, and then we only come down, we're only down to maybe a few hundred thousand dollars. And we're only having a few hundred thousand dollars to try to maintain ten million dollars of stuff. Okay? That's because we never, not because we never learned how to manage money. We were doing fine before we won the lottery. We had a job. We had a steady job that was just paying, you know, maybe twice as much as minimum wage. And we were saving some money, and we had enough money for the apartment, and we had nice furniture, but it wasn't expensive. And we had nice clothes, but they weren't too expensive. But you know, we had some things. We had very nice things, and it's like we were living good. You know, we were living comfortable, and we had a job, and we had, you know, we were happy. But all of a sudden, we got ten million dollars, and now all of the money is spent, and we are not able to understand what happened to all the money and we have all the stuff and we don't know how to make more money 
okay? But even though we were reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, we were uh, by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, that, by the way, is a good book. <laughs> and even though we were re reading Thinking, Thinking and Growing Rich by Napoleon Hill, and we were educating ourselves on how to, if we would be uh, one day multimillionaires, how we would be able to become even billionaires. We did not become millionaires and billionaires because we bought all this stuff. And we didn't know that the desire for all those things existed within us. Because we weren't thinking we were going to win the lottery and we're going to, you know, none of that stuff really was... Uh, possible in our in our minds in the forefronts of our head we were co we were consumed with other things we were distracted by other things but deep down inside we didn't know that we have this desire to be extravagant and to be like lady gaga let's say or michael jackson to have a giant ranch and like a playground giant playground on your ranch and to call the ranch to have a, a, a gate with the with your name on it. You didn't know that you had all those desires. So those are the passions. Those are the passions. Just as rain breaks through an ill-thatched house, so passion penetrates an undeveloped mind. Okay, let's look at the second pair. Just as rain does not break through a well-thatched house, so passion never penetrates a well-developed mind. Let's read it again. Just as rain breaks through an ill-thatched house, so passion penetrates an undeveloped mind. Just as rain does not break through a well-thatched house, so passion never penetrates a well-developed mind. Okay, what is that? Well-developed. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, well-developed. Let's go into the book, Buddha's Brain, and talk about it. Chapter 2, The Evolution of Suffering. Nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. Theodosius Dobzhansky said that. Okay, this book is written by Rick Hansen called Buddha's Brain Rick, by Rick Hansen. There's a lot about life that's wonderful, but it has its hard parts too. Look at the faces around you. They probably hold a fair amount of strain, disappointment, and worry. And you know your own frustrations and sorrows as well. The pangs of living range from subtle loneliness and dismay to moderate stress, hurt, and anger, and then to intense trauma and anguish. This whole range is what we mean by the word suffering. A lot of suffering is mild, but chronic, such as a background sense of anxiety, irritability, or lack of fulfillment. It's natural to want less of this, and, it's, and in its place, more contentment, love, and peace. 
To make any problem better, you need to understand its causes. That's why all the great physicians, psychologists, and spiritual teachers have been master diag diagnosticians. Diagnosticians. They're able to diagnose. For example, in his Four Noble Truths, the Buddha identified an ailment, suffering, diagnosed it, its cause, craving, a compelling sense of need for something, specified its cure, freedom from craving, and prescribed a treatment, the Eightfold Path. This chapter examines suffering in light of evolution in order to diagnose its sources in your brain. When you understand why you feel nervous, annoyed, hassled, driven, blue, or inadequate, those feelings have less power over you. This by itself can bring some relief. Your understanding will also help you make better use of the prescriptions in the rest of this book. I'm going to read that again. For example, in his Four Noble Truths, the Buddha identified an ailment, suffering, diagnosed its cause, craving, a compelling sense of need for something, remember, the passions, specified its cure, freedom from craving, and prescribed a treatment the Eightfold Path, and prescribed a treatment, okay? The Eightfold Path. Why does the book say treatment? I'm not sure, but they chose that word treatment. But it says, the Buddha actually says the Eightfold Path is the cure. The cure is freedom from craving. And how do you get freedom from craving? By following the eightfold path. So that how do how do we develop our minds? By following the eightfold path and freeing ourselves from craving, from our passions, from our sins. That is called in other religions called repentance. Okay? It's the same thing. The evolving brain. Life began around 3.5 billion years ago. Multi-celled creatures first appeared about 650 million years ago. When you get a cold, remember that microbes had nearly a 3 billion year head start. A 3 billion year head start. By the time the earliest jellyfish arose about 600 million years ago, Animals had grown complex enough that their sensory and motor systems needed to communicate with each other. <sighs> Thus the beginnings of neural tissue. Thus the beginnings of neural tissue. As animals evolved... Jesus, thank you, Lord. Sorry. Sorry, just, uh, sorry, just dealing with something I'm thinking about. <laughs> no worries. As animals evolved, so did their nervous systems, which slowly developed a central headquarters in the form of a brain. 
Evolution builds on pre-existing capabilities. Life's progression can be seen inside your own brain in terms of what Paul McLean, 1990, referred to as the reptilian, paleomammalian, and neomammalian levels of development. All figures are somewhat inexact and for illustrative purposes only. Cortical tissues that are relatively recent Complex, conceptualizing, slow, and motivationally diffuse sit atop subcortical and brainstem structures that are ancient, simplistic, concrete, fast, and motivationally intense. The subcortical region lies in the center of your brain, beneath the cortex and on top of the brainstem. The brainstem roughly corresponds to the reptilian brain. Seen in figure two, this, there's a figure of... Uh, a drawing. As you go through your day, there's a kind of lizard squirrel monkey brain in your head shaping your reactions from the bottom up. Okay? The brain stem is in the center part of your brain. It is called the reptilian brain. I don't know why it's called the reptilian brain because uh, geneticists and um, anthropologists and uh, um, evolutionists have uh, decided that the brain has developed in three stages because there are three sections of this brain, the human brain, and uh, we have uh, evolved from reptiles, perhaps. I don't know. But the, uh, the above section, which is more complex, and which is above the reptilian brain is called the paleomammalian brain. And the one that is above, which is the uh, cerebral cortex, which is above the high brain, the upper brain, which is the majority of the brain, is the neomammalian, the neomammalian brain, which is the, the, which is the, the brain that we could think of that is right below our skull. Okay? Nonetheless, the modern cortex has great influence over the rest of the brain, and it's been shaped by evolutionary pressures to develop ever-improving abilities to parent, bond, communicate, cooperate, and love. Dunbar and Schultz, 2007. The cortex is divided into two hemispheres, connected by the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum uh, is right down the center of your brain, going from, uh, you know, like between the eyes all the way going back to the back part of your head, okay? Uh, as it's, it's, it's deep, though. It's, it's in the middle of the brain. As we evolved, the, the left hemisphere in most people came to focus on sequential and linguistic processing while the right hemisphere lies in holistic and visual spatial processing. Of course, the two halves of your brain work closely together. Many neural structures are duplicated so that there is one in each hemisphere. Nonetheless, the usual convention is to refer to a structure in the singular. Uh, as an example, the hippocampus, rather than the hippocampuses. It's just the hippocampus, okay? Three survival strategies. Over hundreds of millions of years of evolution, our ancestors developed three fundamental strategies for survival. 
creating separations in order to form boundaries between themselves and the world and between one mental state and another, maintaining stability in order to keep physical and mental systems in a healthy balance, approaching opportunities and avoiding threats in order to gain things that promote offspring and escape or resist things that don't. These strategies have been extraordinarily effective for survival, but Mother Nature doesn't care how they feel. To motivate animals, including ourselves, to follow these strategies and pass on their genes, neural networks evolved to create pain and distress under certain conditions. When separations break down, stability is shaken, opportunities disappoint, and threats loom. Unfortunately, these conditions happen all the time because everything is connected. Everything keeps changing. Opportunities routinely remain unfulfilled or lose their luster, and many threats are inescapable, aging and death. Let's see how this makes you suffer. Okay? What are we talking about? Constantly changing. All interconnected. Okay? Opportunities routinely remain unfulfilled or lose their luster. And many threats are inescapable. Aging and death. Okay? And sickness. And falling in love. And falling out of love. And, and getting things. And passions. Those are the passions. Passions. What are, what are the passions? They're limitations. Oh, who are they controlled by? Mara. It's all within time. It says, unfortunately, these conditions happen all the what? All the time. All the time. Kala. Kala means time. Akala, timeless, no time. Akala, no time. Kala, time. Mara, the one who is the controller of samsara, the wheel of suffering, the timeless being. Akala, the one who is eternal, the transcendental ruler of all things, the transcendental one, which is beyond the material plane. The same Amitabha. Amitabha. Let's look it up again. Amita. Ba. Ba is light. Meaning of Amitabha. The infinite light. Amiteus. Sounds like Amideus. Deus is another word for God. Deus. It comes from Deva. Which also implies light. The infinite light, the Ain Sof in Kabbalah. Okay? The eternal one. 
that which is eternal is not affected by time. It's not affected by Mara. It's not affected by suffering. It's not affected by change. That one is changeless. The Buddha's teachings are changeless. The Eightfold Path has remained changeless for the last 2,500 years. And it is said in Buddhism that even if there does not exist in this time of Mapo, those last days, the, the, the end of time, if, even if there does not, well, Mapo is the time of the end of time. Even if there does not exist a, a Buddha, even if the teachings of the Buddha were to be destroyed and all religious teachings were to be undone and destroyed and no one, uh, generations would grow up not knowing anything about about the Buddha, uh, about the Buddha's teachings. The potential exists forever, inherent to our being, inherent to nature, for a Buddha to arise. The potential is always there. The potential is a factor of existence. It is a factor of reality. The ten factors. I will talk about briefly the ten factors. Okay? The ten factors. The reality consists of appearance, nature, entity, power, influence, internal cause, relation, latent effect, manifest effect, and their consistency from beginning to end. From their consistency from beginning to end. The infinite light Amitabha, the causeless one, the absolute one, the one which no one can speak of. Scientists try to go back to the beginning of the Big Bang and they get to what? Something like 10 to the oh, 15th million trillion, like whatever. Uh, power, you know, just some, some kind of ridiculous number. They can go back so far with their calculations. And not even that is said to be the beginning. Not even that is said to be the beginning of the universe. It is not the beginning of the universe. The scientists now, they have a theory called inflation. They call it, it's an infinite inflation that has always been happening and then the Big Bang happened out of the infinite inflation. Uh, it, it's, it's just mind-boggling because scientists cannot, with the mathematics, they come to absolute no thing. 
They come to absolute zero, absolute no thing, nothing. <laughs> so that is called the beginning. There is the beginning, and there is an end. But how can infinite light or a timeless being exist within a beginning and an end? <laughs> and yet that one does that one does exist within the beginning and the end and also transcendent transcendent to that beginning and end so that one exists within samsara because the buddha came to the full realization of enlightenment that he was interconnected with all things he was one with all things and transcendental to all things <laughs> so okay the 10 factors of life I'll read a little bit about it in many teachings of Buddhism the Buddha is presented as a being whose abilities and wisdom far surpass that of ordinary people. The Lotus Sutra, however, completely overturns this perception, clarifying that ordinary people inherently possess the same qualities as the Buddha and are equal in their capacity to manifest life's most profound and positive qualities. Okay, elements common to all life. The first three factors describe the basic framework of life. Appearance relates to physical features and attributes, what can be seen. Nature refers to those aspects of life that are essentially non-physical, our inherent disposition and latent position, meaning a potential position, a, a, a potential, a potential potential, a latent potential, that which is inherent, right? Our inherent disposition, that which is already there, okay? Which is a potential. This is just something that's there, but it's not manifest yet. Entity is life itself expressed as appearance and nature. If appearance is one side of a coin and nature the other, Entity is the coin itself. All three aspects are inseparable. And so, these are just the three, the, the first three factors that are, are making the framework of life, making the framework of reality. We have appearance because we can be seen. Even if there was no one else around. You know that, that question, the... That kind of a Zen koan that asks, if a tree falls in the forest and no and nothing that can is able to hear is around to hear it fall, does it make a sound? And according to this, it does. It does make a sound. Why it makes a sound? Because it's inherent. Sound is inherent to the factor, 
that's a factor that's a factor of that that nature that part of nature so even if no one is around to be able to see you and you're the only one around with eyes you can see yourself okay you can see yourself and even if you were blind you are able to be seen okay that's the point nature refers to those aspects of life that are essentially non-physical our inherent disposition and latent potential so another factor of our lives and our reality is nature the nature of the being the inherent disposition and latent potential the hidden or unmanifest potential entity we are entities entities is our life itself expressed as appearance and nature as our non-physical qualities and our physical qualities as our manifested appearance and our unmanifest disposition and potential entity comes from those two things we are entities because those two realities exist as our framework of life if appearance is one side of a coin and nature the other entity is the coin itself all three aspects are inseparable inseparable okay that's just the beginning of the 10 factors okay so this is how it all ties together you can see how it all ties together you you can see it already all right i'll read from the dhammapada the dharmapada again just as rain breaks through an ill-thatched house so passion penetrates an undeveloped mind just as rain does not break through a well-thatched house so passion never penetrates a well-developed mind and what did we say was a well-developed mind even in the book buddha's brain one who makes causes toward the cessation of suffering by following the eightfold path is developing the mind well and developing the brain as well the brain is able to be shaped and reshaped throughout our lives so this is why shakyamuni buddha was able to reach enlightenment even in his when he was coming to in his late 20s i think he reached enlightenment uh let me see let's look it up when did shakyamuni buddha when did shakyamuni buddha okay when did shakyamuni buddha reach enlightenment How old was the Buddha when he reached enlightenment? 35. According to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, at a place now known as Bodh Gaya, he sat in meditation. Bodh Gaya. 
forces of the demon Mara, Siddhartha reached enlightenment and became a Buddha at the age of 35. Thank you. Thank you, Alexa. At the place now known as Bodh Gaya, Enlightenment Place, he sat and meditated all night beneath a, a pipal tree or a, a Bodhi tree. After defeating the forces of the demon Mara, Siddhartha reached enlightenment and became a Buddha at the age of 35. An enlightened one at the age of 35. So, don't let anyone tell you that, oh, you finished developing uh, when you're 25 years old. <laughs> so how did the Buddha become enlightened at 35? Okay, so we'll go back to the, the book, The Buddha's Brain. The mind and the brain are one. They are one, just like appearance, nature, and entity, the three factors the one coin, two sides, and the coin itself, making three things that exist in one. Okay? All right. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. Thank you so much. Peace be with you. Salam alaikum. And peace out. Good night. <laughs>